Here in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at just mainly one verse, verse 24, but we'll be looking at other verses throughout the message. But in Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be looking at the subject of a biblical worldview of morality. You know, we've looked at several different um, topics on a biblical worldview, and I hope you can see the purpose of looking at this. We live in a world where most people do not have a biblical worldview of anything in life. And we, we've looked at God and how we know, need to be able to say, yes, there is a God without any question. I know it. I can see it. I can prove it from the scriptures. I can prove it in my own heart. There's all kinds of evidence that there's a God. And that we can believe that the Bible is true. We can depend upon it. We can say, yes, this is God's word. And it will guide us and, and lead us. And this is the, we can depend upon it. And that also the Bible is sufficient you know, sometimes people say, well, yeah, I believe the Bible, but I don't know whether it can really answer all the needs of my life today. There's all kinds of things. This is, you know, it's 2,000 years old. How can the Bible really meet my current needs today? Well, the Bible does, and we saw that. Then we saw how the biblical worldview of life, how that life comes from God. And God is the giver of life, and, and all, the, all that has to do with life comes from God and is around God. And then last week we looked at creation and origins and how that God is the the author of all that is uh, in our world today, all that we see around us. God is the one who created it all. And that is very significant because all around us we're bombarded in our world with the philosophies of, of evolution and how that it all evolved over millions and billions of years and that the earth is really billions of years old. And the Bible says the earth is only about 6,000 years old. And that God created it all. And why do we believe that? How can we defend that? But you know, there's one topic we're going to look at this morning that is one that all of us have been influenced by, and it is permeating our society, and that is an unbiblical view of morality. And it is important that we grasp a hold of this and see it from God's perspective. You know, while God created Adam and Eve innocent back in the Garden of Eden, he gave them a free will. That is the ability to be able to choose between obeying and disobeying. And God did not make them robots because he didn't want them to love him out of mandatory. He didn't want to pull the strings and say, all right, now it's time to love me. And, uh, you know, to be able to communicate with God, fellowship with God, and uh, to do this voluntarily. They needed a free will. And so all of us have a free will built into us as part of our makeup to be able to make right choices. And we established way back in, in, in the very first of these messages on the worldview of God that morality is something that all people have a certain degree of morality when they were born. They know that there is a right and a wrong. Now, there's a lot of people out there that are trying to twist it, and they're saying, well, we live in a relative world, and, and right for you is not right for me, and wrong for you is not wrong for me, and, and they have all these crazy ideas. But the truth of the matter is, everybody believes in right and wrong. And, you know, it's because if they say, no, I don't believe in right and wrong, they say, all right, well, I'm going to stop over tonight, I'm going to steal everything in your house. You can't do that. I can too because there's no right and wrong. See, they know deep down inside there is right and wrong, but they just don't like to apply it when it comes to morality. And so as we look at this this morning, the subject of morality really covers basically anything dealing with right and wrong. But we're going to focus our attention primarily on a sexual morality, because this is the area that seems to be the greatest, well, perhaps not the greatest perversion of morality in our world today, but a big 
uh, perversion of morality or a distortion of morality in our world today. And uh, there's a lot of confusion in that. You know, it all started back there in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were innocent, when God created them. They lived in a perfect utopia. It's hard to, our, our mind can't grasp that. We cannot imagine living in a place where there was absolutely no sin, nothing bad, nothing wrong. Everything was right, and God was in control, and we could communicate and talk with God on a regular basis walking in the garden. That is so beyond our comprehension that we just can't even really grasp that. But what a wonderful reality that was for Adam and Eve. And they walked and talked with God, and God said, you can eat of all that I've created for you in the garden. You know, that Garden of Eden was just one place that God had set aside. Now, he had filled the whole world with plants and food and fresh things and, and living things all over the whole world. But he made a special garden that was a paradise for them. And in that garden, he put all the fruits and vegetables and nuts and seeds that they could possibly want, and all for them to enjoy freely. But God said, there's one tree in the middle of the garden that's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You are not to eat of that tree. Now, God put that there for them to be able to help them to see that there has to be a choice of right and wrong. And Adam and Eve, they lived fine for a time, But then Satan came along working through that serpent in the garden. And that's another whole story of, you know, how did they talk to this serpent and not run away in fear? I just can't help but wonder if maybe back in the early days like that, they were able to communicate with the animals. Don't know, that's just a perhaps. But anyway, Eve was speaking with the serpent, and the serpent deceived her, and she took of that tree. He said, God will not kill you. You won't be able to find out what is good and bad if you'll eat of that tree. And God said, don't. But they did it anyway. And Adam was there with her and he took it. Adam was not being the leader in his family. And Adam's let her take charge. She took the fruit. He ate with her. And they plunged the human race into sin. And as a result, all of us struggle today. Every human being that has ever been born struggled with sin except Jesus Christ, who is the perfect Son of God. Now, they ate of that tree, and they did. They did get to know what good and evil was, but in a wrong way. God didn't want them to know that. God wanted them to live in innocence. And now they knew good and evil. And humans still, deep down inside, have an innate sense of morality. But it's been distorted. Many people today like to live in what they would consider amorality. No morality. I'll do what I want to do. But in reality, it's not an amoral society we live in. It's an immoral society. It is against God's rules. God said, I'm going to set the rules, and this is what is right, this is what is wrong. And when it comes to this topic of uh, sexual morality... There is a lot of confusion in our world and a lot of distortion in our world. And if you listen to the media or watch television, you are being bombarded by the advertisements that are promoting it, and it has probably contaminated some of your thinking. And so I challenge you this morning to listen carefully and think about the biblical morality so that you can put up your guard. There may be a need for making some changes in your life. 
to protect yourself from the influences of the amoral and immoral society that we live in. But you let God work in your heart as we dig through this this morning. Genesis chapter 2, and I want us to begin reading in uh, verse number, a uh, couple of verses before our text. Verse number 21. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the, uh, the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were naked, and the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. As we look at this passage here, this passage gives us, first of all, some insight. It, first of all, helps us to see that God has the right to make moral rules. God has the right. Now, why does God have the right? Well, he's the creator of all things. We saw that in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God has the right to make the rules, because he is the creator. And if you make something, let's just say you create something, you make something, you design something, you put something together. Some of you like building things out of wood. Others, you make little hobbies of things. Whatever you make, you have the right to do with it what you want, because you made it, it's yours. And that's the way it is with God. God looked down on the, the, the universe that he created, and he says, it's mine. I made it. I can do what I want to with it. And God said, I'm going to set some rules. Now, when God set these rules out here, he, God being the God that is perfect, made good rules. You know, if, and let's just turn that around to see how the uh, wrong worldview can really mess things up. If evolution was true, and God didn't create everything, and we're all the res- results of billions of years of accidents and explosions and problems that eventually came into us, then you have no creator, you have no accountability, you have no one that stands over you as an authority, you, can, you have no one that says this is right and this is wrong, you're just an accident, you're just a p- possibility that happened through all these evolutionary explosions. And so there's no accountability. Is it any wonder today that there is so much problem with mass murders and, and the violence and the sexual immoralities and the breakdown of marriage in the family today? Is it any wonder? No, because there is no absolute. If that's really what people think, if they think, as our world does, that we're not accountable to anybody because there is no such thing as a creator. We just evolved over the billions of years. And if that was true, do as you like. When you die, you're dead. And that's the philosophy of many people today. But that's not the philosophy of the Bible. That's not what God tells us in the scriptures. And so today we're studying this thought of a biblical worldview. As creator of all things, God has the right to set the rules. And the wonderful thing is, is our God is a righteous God. Our God is a righteous God. You know, many people of the world... Worship gods that they're terrified of. Because those gods are evil and harmful. I remember when we lived in Papua New Guinea. The people were terrified of the evil spirits. And rightfully so. Because the demons were very powerful. 
And it was no joke to them. They were scared of them. Those things that they worshipped and honored were terrifying to them. And yet our God is a wonderful God. He is a righteous God. He is a loving God. He is a God who cares about us. He has fashioned us in a wonderful way. He's given us His image so that we can communicate with Him. And being that wonderful, righteous God that He is, He has set down rules for us for our good. You know, some people look at the Bible and say, oh, the Bible's just full of all these rules. Can't do this, can't do that, can't do this. Can't do anything that's fun anymore. God, got to follow God. They don't understand. Because the things that the Bible says don't do are things that will hurt you. It's just like a parent saying, children, you're not going to play in the streets. And if you see a snake, you're not going to go pick it up and play with it. Oh, but mom, you're so mean. No, that's being loving. That's being careful. Now, our God does that for us. And he set down some basic moral laws for us because he loves us. And here in these verses that I just read, we see here that God lays down the first and basic rule for morality, and that is marriage. He wants there to be marriage. Now, when we think about marriage, there's a lot of different false ideas of what that involves. A biblical marriage, what is that like? Some of you haven't had the privilege of living in a biblical marriage. Some of you didn't grow up in a biblical marriage family. And so you have a hard time comprehending what it means to have a biblical marriage and a biblical family. But a biblical marriage will provide leadership, love, security, companionship, and stability. That's what God wants in a family. That's what wives and husbands need in a family. That's what children need in a family. Stability and love and communion and fellowship. That's what they need. And God designed marriage for that purpose. Notice again in verse number 24, he says, Therefore shall a man... Alright, let's just stop there. God placed a man as the leader in marriage. God's not just trying to be chauvinistic. He's He's just saying... Listen, there's got to be somebody in charge, and it's going to be the man. God created Adam first, created Eve from his side. He says man's in charge. Now, just because man's in charge doesn't mean man's better. It doesn't mean anything like that. It simply means that the husband needs to be in charge. Now, men, if you're the husband of your family, you need to be in charge. And we live in a society and a world that pushes against that. And the women try to take control. And God says, that's not right. There's not going to be peace and harmony and happiness in a biblical sense without the husband being the leader. He says here the husband is to be the head. Over in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27, is the section that deals with the husband and telling him how to conduct himself. Not easy verses. You know, sometimes women say, oh, the Bible's so hard on the women. You know, they got to submit to their husband. Just think about what the man's got to do. Look at this command that God gives us there in Ephesians 5. All right, he says, husbands, love your wives, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
Christ loved us so much that He died for us. Were we worthy of dying for? No. But He thought so. And He died for us. Even while we're yet sinners, He died for us. And He says, Husbands, love your wives even when she's not nice. Even when she's not Worthy of your love. Love your wife as Christ loved to the point of death. He goes on that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Christ's job, and as he looks at us as his bride, he is washing and purifying and cleansing and making us better. And he said that is what a husband is to do for his wife. Men, we have a big responsibility in helping our wife become more like Christ. Helping her become more godly. Some of you have wives that aren't believers. You have a big job of trying to win her to Christ and living a life that will set an example before her. Others of you have have other struggles in your home, but he says, I want you to love them in a way that you're improving them, washing them in the water by the word, spending time with the scriptures, helping your family. As Christian husbands, we ought to be reading the scriptures with our wives to help them to grow and explaining the scriptures to them to help them to become more like Christ. And he says that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. It's a big responsibility, man, to become the kind of a husband that is going to make my wife more holy, more without blemish, more clean, more pure, more godly. That takes work. And it's not an easy task. So anytime the women say, oh, we got the hard part. No, the men have got the hard part. God says women follow his example. Men, you better lead. That's a big responsibility. Huge. But then he goes on. And he says, back in our verse, in Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother. God says here that, the man is to step out and he is to find a wife. The marriage union is a voluntary union. It's not mandatory in the Bible that, a, that everyone gets married. Although that is the expected norm, it is not mandatory. But God said this is what is mandatory for morality if you're struggling there, you read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he says, if you struggle with your mind morally, you better get married. And that's the right thing to do. But occasionally there's some people that are strong and aren't affected so much like that. That's the rare man. But he says it's a voluntary thing. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 and 2. Listen to these words in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, now, concerning the things wherever I wrote unto you, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and let every woman have her own husband. He said, this is God's protection against immorality. I want you to be moral. If you can't contain yourself and think right and do right, then you need to get married. Find a wife. Get married. Now, 
As we think about finding a wife, number one, the scriptures, he doesn't mention it here, but throughout the Old Testament, we see a very strong principle. The Jewish people, God told them, do not, whatever you do, do not marry a non-Jew. Why? Was God just anti-Gentile? Not necessarily. God was saying, you know what is right, you know what is true, and God is your guide. They don't have me as their guide, and they're going to lead you astray. And if you marry one of them, they're going to lead you into paganism. They're going to lead you into idolatry. And did Israel listen? No. What happened? They went into idolatry. And what happened then? God sent them into captivity. God wasn't being mean. God was being Helpful to them. He says, do not marry an unbeliever. Now you move over the New Testament, and the New Testament tells us that we are not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Now the strongest yoke known to man is marriage. God says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. If you come to know the Lord after you've been married, now you're married to an unbeliever. God doesn't say break it off. you got a tough job of trying to win your spouse to Christ. But he says when you're going into it, do not look for an unbeliever. You look for a believer. Not just a Christian, but a Christian who loves God with all their heart. How many thousands upon thousands of young people said, yeah, but mom and dad, he's a Christian. He comes to church. And then after they get married, he says, done with that. I'm not going back there again. See, she was deceived. And God says, be careful about that. There's, even, after, even after death, marriage is till death. We'll be seeing that in a few moments. But marriage is until death. And after death, God tells the, the a widow woman in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the very last verse, he says, she can be married again whom she will, only in the Lord. What's he saying? She can marry anybody she wants, as long as they're a believer. She better make sure he's a believer. Right? Now that's a principle all through the scriptures. But as you look for a look for a spouse, some of you young people, how are you supposed to find a spouse? Number one thing you don't want to do is the number one thing the world does do. Dating. Dating is a, is a preparation for divorce. Dating is a preparation for divorce. Why do I say that? What happens in dating? I date him for a week. Oh, I don't like him anymore. Dump him. Date him for a week. No, done for that one. Date him another one. Date another one. Date another one. Date another one. How many times they date and break up, date and break up, date and break up, date and break up. It's countless times. Then they get married and say, oh, can't stand him anymore. Dump him. See? There's a better way. The better way is courtship. Now, there's a lot of different definitions of courtship, but basically courtship involves some biblical principles. Number one, and that is, you better spend some earnest time praying. If you're not, if you've never been married, you need to spend time every day praying, God, would you lead me to the one you want for me? Pray about it. Earnestly pray about it. Number two, Seek counsel, primarily from godly parents. If you don't have godly parents, seek counsel from a godly person who you respect, that can guide you and help you. Number three, 
Evaluation, 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 evaluation. You evaluate tons before you even begin to think about a serious relationship. What do I mean by that? You better have a good, solid look at that person and watch them carefully. How do they act? How do they react? How do they interact? What do you, get to know all you can about them before you commit your heart. What happens is young people, they commit their heart to a person. And then, you know, that's, what I, that's one of the struggles when they come to the preacher and says, all right, now we want to get married and, and uh, you know, we need some counsel. And, I mean, pastoral counsel for marriage is almost a waste of time in the sense that, you know, if, you can, if the pastor can see that these two are just not made for each other, it's, it's not going to work. He can say that and they'll say, oh, pastor's crazy. We'll be fine. They've already committed their heart. By the time they come to the preacher, they're already planning marriage. So they've already committed their heart to them. And to try to break something up that's not going to work is almost impossible. So what do we need to do? We need to make sure before we commit our heart that we make sure that we've evaluated and evaluated and evaluated and sought counsel from our parents and from our pastor and from others that will lead us so that we don't step into something that's going to give us trouble. After evaluation, there's patience. Be patient. Be patient. And then the last one is you better have God's peace. I got peace that this is the one that God's chosen for me. Then, make some plans. But even then, you do not spend time together by yourselves. That's preparation for immorality. You set two young people that are in the peak of their hormonal cycles, and you set them together and expect them to stay pure, it's a challenge. I'm not saying it can't be done, but it is a major challenge. It's far better to have someone with you all the time. Say, oh, Pastor, that's old, dark ages. No, it's Bible. It's protection. It'll help you. And if you don't have anything to share with each other that you can't share around someone else, because things that you can talk about that need to be talked about that are more in-depth than that, you can wait until you're married. It'll be fine. Now, it's not easy. It's not easy. But that's what we need to do. We need to be very careful. Back to Genesis 2.24. We see there, he says, And therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife. Now, did you catch that? He didn't say cleave to his boyfriend. He said to his wife. Biblical marriage is heterosexual. A man and a woman. That's the only thing you find in the Bible that God condones. The only thing. Anything else in the Bible, God condemns. Now, that's not what the world says. And so if you watch things on television, you listen to news, you listen to music, you listen to all that kind of stuff, they're promoting the opposite side of it. What is God saying? God's saying, this is what I planned from the beginning. That's what I want you to follow. God was very clear about that in the Scripture. We find also that, right along with this, that it says, and a man shall, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and cleave unto his wives. Is that what it says? 
No, it says cleaving to his wife. Mono. It's, it's a not polygamy. It's more um, the the single here. The what's the word? Monogamous. All right. It's a monogamous relationship. It's not a polygamous relationship. And they say, yeah, but pastor, there's a bunch of people in the Bible that had more than one wife. Yeah, and you name one of them that didn't have problems. They all had problems. And some of them had a lot of problems. And the more wives they had, the more problems they had. Solomon had more than anybody else that's mentioned in the Bible. And Solomon had more problems than you can shake a stick at. And Solomon was a curse upon Israel. Because he brought idolatry into Israel for all of his wives. He set up altars to the false gods. He introduced idolatry into Israel because of his wives. Exactly what God told him not to do. Polygamy is not the answer. One wife, one man for life. That's God's plan. And that's what is right. Then notice here once again, therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and cleave to his wife. Leave father and mother. We find that this is a forming of a new family. When husband and wife leave mom and dad, they begin a new family unit. That's God's plan. That's God's focus. That's what God intended. Jesus affirmed this in Matthew chapter 19. Flip over with me to Matthew 19. I'm going to spend a couple of times there, so I want you to see this with your eyes. This is a very important passage. Matthew chapter 19. Look at verses 5 and 6. Matthew chapter 19. Beginning with verse number 5. And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore there are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Alright, so he says here that they are to form a new family. They're no longer two, they're now one. That's God's plan. And then we see another aspect of that plan is that it was to be permanent. He is to cleave unto his wife. And then we see there again, Jesus affirmed this. He said, what therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. He said, it is a permanent unit. It is a permanent bondage. It is something that is not supposed to be stopped. It is supposed to continue on. And so we need to understand what God said and follow what God said in this. God hates divorce. Now, God doesn't hate divorced people. But God hates divorce. And if you've been through a divorce, you know the heartache, you know the splinter, you know the pain, you know the sadness. You ought to hate divorce too. Divorce is painful. Anybody that's gone through one knows the pain of it. It's agonizing. And God says, in Malachi 2 verse 16, says there that God hates putting away of divorce. God said that marriage was a one flesh union sealed by God. Back there in our Genesis text, and then again in Matthew, he says there in Genesis that he's, uh, they shall be one flesh. Matthew says, Jesus was saying here, they twain shall be one flesh. 
What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. God joins them together. You say, well, I wasn't married in a church. That doesn't make any difference where you were married. If you were legitimately married, God joined you together. When we lived in Papua New Guinea, some of the village people were confused. And they said, well, I don't know whether I'm really married or not. Because, you know, I didn't get married in church. We just had a village marriage. I said, well, did everybody in the village know you were getting married? Yeah. Did you have a, you know, gathering on that day and you had a big feast or something? Yeah. Well, then you're married because it was a setting aside. You joined together. They didn't know anything about saying all the little vows and, you know, until death do us part and all that kind of stuff. But they knew that they were joining together and that's going to be my wife and she's going to be my husband or he's going to be my husband for the rest of time. They knew that. And so God, God is the one that joins them together. They become one flesh. That one flesh has probably got a couple of aspects to it. One's the physical side, but there's also another sense in which God joins them together into a, a unit that has not been there before. And God, God does this to strengthen and to form that marriage union like He wanted. Marriage is God's plan for producing offspring. There in Genesis, we don't see that mentioned immediately, but God does tell them to be fruitful and multiply in another passage right close to that. But one of the key passages of that is in, in uh, Psalm 127. Psalm 127 is an awesome passage on this. Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 127, no, not 1 and 2, uh, 3 and, let's see here, Psalm 127, 3. Psalm 127.3 Lo, children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is His reward. God says that children are in heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is God's reward. God did not say children are a curse. No. He said they're a reward. They're a blessing. Are they difficult? Sometimes. Is it hard to raise children? Absolutely. But they're still a blessing. And God says that children, having children is a blessing. And one of the reasons that He created marriage was for procreation, that you could have children. And the blessing was that. God said the marriage is to be a completing of the union, a completing of each other. Back in Genesis chapter 2, look at verse number 18. Genesis 2 and verse number 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Now think about this. All through Genesis chapter 1 and up to this point in Genesis 2, God said, I created this and it was good. I created this and it was good. And I created this and it was good. And I created this and it was good. After every day, God said it was good. It was good. Even after he created Adam, he said it was good. But then he looked at Adam and said, it is not good that Adam should be alone. And Adam agreed. Adam had just named all the animals. And he says, God, something's not right here. There's a boy and girl cow and a boy and girl pig and a boy and girl bird. But I'm by myself. God said, it is not good. And he took Eve or created Eve from Adam's rib. 
and put them together because it was not good for them to be alone. And he created Eve to be his helpmate. The word help means to be a helper. Meet, the word meet there has to do with being parallel, being a companion or a completer. And he made so that the wife was to be the completer, the parallel completer for her husband. Men, if you're married, you know deep down inside you, you, need, you need completion. We're not, we're not all we ought to be. There are many things. My wife completes me in so many ways that I can't even count them all. Because I come short in those ways. And she excels in those things. And working together as a team, we can become a much more productive home unit because we work together at completing each other. And that's what God wants. And he said that's what the wife was for. He created the wife to complete her husband. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse number 22 says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. That submission is not demeaning. It is not putting her down. It's not saying wives are second class. It's not that at all. Not at all. I mean, you look at any successful business, they've got somebody that's in charge. If you have a multiple leader, you have problems because there's conflicts. People don't think alike. There's got to be somebody that's in charge. And God says in the home, it's going to be the husband. And the wife is his completer, working side by side with him to complete him, to make him all that he ought to be. So God has placed him there. But yet we find that God says that the wife is to be submissive to him. You know, even in business, if you have somebody that's the, the leader and you have people under the leader that are unsubmissive, they're going to have problems in their business. The boss says, I want you to do it this way. And he says, boss is crazy. I'm not doing it that way. I'm going to do it my way. And they do it his way. Problems are going to come up. It will come up. And that's true in every situation in life, including the home. God says, I want there to be a leader, and the leader is going to be the husband. And yet many homes, many Christian homes, that is not the case. Sadly, many wives who claim to be submissive manipulate their husbands to get their own way. When I talk about manipulation, let me give you some examples to make sure we understand what we're talking about here. Giving to get. I did this for you, so you better do this for me. Complaining to get. When are you going to ever do it the right way? You know, complaining to get. Withholding to get. I'm not going to give you what you want until you give me what I want. Dishonoring to get. Many wives dishonor their husbands. Shame them into doing what they want them to do. That's manipulation. I did this, so you ought to do this. That's manipulation. Conditional love is manipulation. And there's lots of different ways that wives manipulate their husbands. And wives, listen, that is just plain wrong. That's sinful. You are never going to be able to have a happy home God's way and do that. That's wrong. You say, yeah, but you don't know my husband. That's not the point. 
The husband could say, I can't love her. Look what kind of woman she is. And God said, that's not the point. You're to love her. Oh, God, how can I love her? And God says, wives, submit to him, even if he's a poor leader. You pray that God will help him become a better leader. But God laid the rules down. It's not for us to twist them and say, but I've got an exception here. No, God said, this is the way it's supposed to be. So if we're going to have a biblical worldview of our morality, we need to follow God's leadership. And God said, for a happy home, men, be men and lead. And wives, be submissive and complete your husband. That's what God wants. God's not trying to be mean. He's just saying, I created you. I know what's best. This is the way it's going to work. We've all purchased something along the way in life and tried to figure it out ourselves without reading the manual. I mean, I don't think I'm the only one that hates reading manuals. All right? And you try to figure it out and say, it's just not working right. I'm going to take this thing back. Did you read the manual? No. Well, read it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what do you know? I missed some things here. And that's the way it is in life. God says, it's not going to work unless you read the manual and follow the manual. Then it'll work. So we need to make sure we do things God's way. God confirmed sex in marriage. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 2. 1 Corinthians 7, verse number 2. We read that verse there where he said that they were to marry and to avoid fornication. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Therefore, nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife and every woman have her own husband. Marriage is right. Fornication is wrong. What is fornication? Well, fornication is any kind of sexual immorality outside of marriage. It's wrong. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you should abstain from fornication. Abstain from fornication. Marriage is right and adultery is wrong. Adultery is sexual intimacy with someone other than your marriage spouse. One of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verse 14, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. The whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. There's no getting around the fact that living with a partner without being married is sin. No other way to look at it, biblically. Marriage is right. Perversion is wrong. Turn with me back to Leviticus chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, third book of the Bible. Leviticus chapter 20. Look at verse number 17. 13. Leviticus 20, verse 13. If a man also lie with a mankind as he lieth with woman, both, both of them have committed an abomination, and they shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. So God, in the very early portions of the Bible, very clearly states that 
perversion of marriage was wrong. We read it more up-to-date New Testament passage of that very clearly in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 and verses 25 to 27. Romans 1, 25. God speaking to those who have rejected Him and He said that who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the Creator more than the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections. Even their women did change the natural use of that uh, into a man. Sorry, changed their natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned and lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir, which was meat. Now the word change there we see in verse 25 and also in verse 26. If you look up the meaning of that word change, it has the idea of changing in the sense of exchanging. Exchanging. They're exchanging the truth of God for a lie. They're exchanging morality for immorality. They're exchanging right for wrong. We ask ourselves a very important question. Why is this increasing in our world today? I think one of the major contributors to this, and this is my opinion, but I think it's based on some facts, is that people are watching and listening to media and music to present the exchange as the normal way of life. Advertisement sells. And if you watch that kind of stuff... That is advertising. And it's trying to get you to conform. Joseph Goebbels, the minister of propaganda for Nazi Germany government in the Third Reich, understood the power of repeating falsehoods. And I quote, If you tell a lie big enough and keep repeating it, People will eventually come to believe it. End quote. The Germans knew that was true back in World War II. And the devil is still using that tactic today. If you tell a big enough lie and repeat it often enough, people are going to believe it. And he keeps telling people all the time on all the media that it's okay not to follow God's word. It's okay to be disobedient to God. It's okay to live your own life and do your own thing and have any kind of morality you want. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. And if you listen to that long enough, what's going to happen? The same thing that's going to happen if you go out in your garden and work all this week with your hoe and you're out there working all day long with your hoe, what's going to happen? You're going to get blisters on your hands. And by the end of the week, those blisters are going to turn into calluses. And those calluses are tough. And you don't feel the pain anymore. That's exactly what's happening in our society. People watch this immorality over and over and over and over and over and over again until now they think, well, it's, it's perfectly normal. Everybody's doing that. It's perfectly normal. And that is corrupting not only unbelievers, but it's corrupting Christians. And so the Christians are saying in their own minds, well, you know, that's not for me, but I mean, to each his own. You know, it's a, you know everybody got to do their own thing. No, it's still wrong. doesn't matter what the world says. God says it's wrong. 
The devil is using immorality and immoral media and godless peers to pressure and to fuel the epidemic of gender and moral confusion in our world. Now what are we going to do about it? We can't stop the media. But you can stop what comes into your mind. And you can stop what comes into your home. And I challenge you, if you are watching things that you know deep down inside are presenting relationships that are immoral, you ought not be watching that. Because it is programming your mind, it is callousing your heart so that you don't think bad thoughts about those things anymore. You don't think that that's, I mean, before long you're going to say, well, it's just, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. God said that's wrong. And so we need to make sure that we understand what God said and we will follow the scriptures. So why have we looked at all this? Because in our world today, our world today does not have a biblical worldview of morality. The world today says, everybody can do whatever you please. You know, you, you sleep with anybody you want to. You can live any way you want to. You can do any kind of lifestyle you want to. It's all up to you and nobody can tell you it's wrong. It's okay. And God says, no, I love you and I have set down some rules. And my rules are that morality needs to stay within marriage. You need to keep it within marriage. Not before marriage. Not after marriage, not outside of marriage. You need to keep it in marriage. And God laid down the rules because He loves us. He's not trying to be hard and mean. He's doing it because He knows what is best for us. So, folks, my challenge today is that if you realize that the the devil has used the media and all these things to soften and callous your mind, then you need to make some choices. What am I going to do to clean up the problem in my heart and my mind? And what am I going to do to prevent more of it from coming in? You're going to have to make your own choices. But I challenge you to think carefully. Do not allow the devil to use the influences around you to pollute your mind and your thinking and your morality. We need to keep ourselves clean for God's glory. If we've struggled, several things that I can suggest that you do to help yourself. Number one, spend more time in the Bible. Spend more time in the Bible. Number two, obey God's Word completely. Completely. Obey it. Guard your eyes. Guard your ears. Choose godly friends only. Ungodly friends are going to lead you astray. Choose godly friends. You say, Pastor, there's not very many around. I know. But choose your friends carefully. For some of you, it may mean making some drastic changes in your way of life. If so, let God have His way. But let's clean up our minds and our hearts and our morality. For God's glory.